Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. With today being International Women's Day, it's an appropriate day to release my conversation with one of the most talented screen directors on the planet, Kate Dennis. Starting out as a camera assistant, Kate worked between focus pulling and script supervising for many years. Credits included the massive films Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Cliffhanger and Babe. In 1996, Kate was offered to direct a half-hour episode of the television series Twisted Tales for producer Brian Brown. She hasn't looked back since and is now one of the most sought-after international television directors. Kate has set up seven television dramas in the US, UK and Australia, including HBO's Run, working with Fleabag's Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Tommy with Eddie Falco, New Amsterdam, which is still going strong after five seasons in the US, Secrets and Lies, which starred Juliette Lewis and Ryan Philippe in its US remake, and the Australian TV phenomenon Offspring, which ran for seven seasons. Kate's episodic work in the US traverses a wide genre of work from comedy to drama and includes Glow, The Tick, Heathers, Strange Angel, Krypton, Damnation, The Mindy Project, Preacher, Turn, Washington's Spies, Fear of the Walking Dead, Sleepy Hollow, and Suits. Her Australian directing work includes Rake, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, Rush, The Secret Life of Us, and Love My Way. In 2017, Kate's episode of The Handmaid's Tale, The Bridge, was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Director for a Drama Series. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Kate Dennis. Good morning, Kate. Morning, Lee. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. I've said good morning, Kate, a few times in my life. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty <laughs> <But> trippy. <yeah. laughs> what part of the world are you in this morning? Back in Victoria, back in Melbourne, in St Kilda East. Wow. Not wow. far from you. Back in the oh, hood. Oh, actually, you're in Sydney now. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. in my hood, but yeah, we've, we relocated up here sort of um, at some point last year because we could work up here and we couldn't down there things have opened up fortunately so um but yeah we've got a lot of bookings so we'll ride them out and then um decide (laughs) whether we stay or whether we head back kate's missing her grand piano oh i bet yeah so um i've kind of had the festival of kate over the last uh, few weeks watching some of the mostly american shows of yours that i hadn't seen you've been a busy girl Oh, lucky you. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it was pretty well back-to-back um, in the States. I sort of had to, you know, prove myself there all over again. So I worked, yeah, I worked slightly insane, insanely hard um, for the first four years, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. And an astonishing array of genres as well. Yeah, I really didn't want to get put in a genre box. And because the show that I went across with Secrets and Lives was a thriller um I didn't want that to sort of always be my thing given that I'd done so much sort of comedy drama work in Australia so yeah I tried to stay out of that box and uh, and, and kept flip-flopping between the two yeah it's pretty impressive and also with the number of different shows I mean really 
flip-flopping between so many different shows, so many different formats, and only on many of them just doing one or two episodes. It must have been a lot of like pressure when you jump onto a new show and you've just had a few days from the last one. You wouldn't have time necessarily to have watched the earlier eps of that series. You've got your script. Give us an insight into how you've ma- how <laughs> managed started, to do that. I was that. incredibly thorough, like with Suits, I think I was coming on in season, I don't even remember what season it was, something like four or five, and I, and I was determined that I was going to watch every episode of the, you know, that had gone before me, and it is, it's incredibly time-consuming, and I suppose I did that for most of the shows I did, and then I started to be offered uh, first season, so there was a lot less prep work to be done. But you really just have to work out how to slip as quickly as possible into the culture of that particular show, work out how to really communicate with the showrunner, get as deep inside their brain as you possibly can, and also work out just how much latitude you have creatively because some of them are are very encouraging and they just say, just run with it. I always remember when I went from working, uh, what was this, you know, CSI, which I was told, do one of those, it's good for your CV, but it wasn't, you know, something I was particularly questing after. And then my next job after that was turn Washington Spies for AMC and I always remember the the shift in culture when I started working for AMC. It was like we think of you as a filmmaker, we just want you to do your thing, blah, 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 and they give you this big playing field to work in and it was a relief because some of those other shows it's like the rules are there and you just slot in and and do it tell me on something like heathers which i watched it it's a pretty intense show pretty unlikable leads was there a point on that obviously it was a very specific vision from the creator but was there a point when you were there and you were doing that and you're like oh, my God, I'm not sure necessarily whether this is a great way to go, but the tone has been set and you have to sort of, you know, run with it. <laughs> Can you give yeah, us some insight was, that into was, that? that was underway and there was no stopping that train. And uh, as it turned out, yeah, that show copped a lot of flack when it went to air. But, you know, the showrunner had his head in a good place. It's just that he'd taken risks that didn't pay off anyway. Yeah, gotcha. Look, almost everything else you've done has turned to gold, so <laughs> you're human after <laughs> well, so all. It's good to have a bit of controversy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, something that blew my mind was Run. Tell us yeah. how that came about, and um, that's one of the best things I've seen in the last couple of years. Oh, thanks, Lee. Look, for me, when I read the script for that, I just leapt at it. It was so nuanced and such a great blend of comedy and drama that I really hadn't seen in that American landscape before. I mean, it was a British creator. She's uh, Phoebe Waller-Jones's best mate and that, and she had directed Fleabag, the stage show, and together they'd cooked up this show, which was mainly Vicky's show, and, and originally Vic, uh, Phoebe was going to be the lead, but then she just... I'm sure you know her career just completely took off. I think she was writing a Bond movie and doing a million things by the time it came around to shooting. So I just fell massively in love with the material and the visuals came to me very quickly. It was, you know, part relationship, mystery, part comedy, part thriller, this seductive tonal mix I had never worked on before, you know, two people walking that emotional tightrope with those high stakes as they peel back the layers on each other and are they running towards each other? Are they running from each other? And, you know, on top of all that, you know, Donald's incredible. It's like having a Ferrari on set, you know. He's got so many different gears and Merritt is just such a instinctive, appealing actress. The casting-wise it was a lot of fun, but really there was also this huge technical challenge of setting it on a train and how the hell we were going to do it. 
So that for me, having come from camera department, played into all those skills that I'd acquired over the years, all those technical skills and, and, you know, just working out how to do that. And we had this whole new system that we worked with, which was um, big screens out the television window, which at that time, like the Mandalorian has the same system, but at that time that, that hadn't been shot. And this system had only been used really once before in Ireland. And so we hooked a carriage onto the back of a train that travelled across America, shot all the plates in um, 270 degrees, and then that was fully digitised so that you could control the plate so the camera was synced to the plate. So if the camera tilted up to look up at a character, the plate changed with it and you had sky behind them. If it tilted down, you saw the track. So it was a very, very interactive system which gave real veracity to the space and also allowed me to shoot handheld in a really subjective and reactive way and not be constrained by green screen or, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I shot a commercial on a train about 20 years ago and it's a nightmare. Um, yeah. <laughs> funnily enough, it was Simon Baker was in it. It was for so good soy milk, but we had a, a stationary train shot down at Central and, you know, where the, the grips were shaking the train and it, it just looked pretty hokey. But what you did kind of blew my mind because it did. It just looked seamless. It looked fantastic. Yeah, it was a lot of work and we had to do things like because we couldn't afford the full surround LCD walls that had been developed. Um, that was going to cost $1.5 million. We didn't have that. So we just reduced the Amtrak windows, I think, by just about two inches. And so the format fitted in television screens. So then we just purchased like 14 television screens and put them all in the windows and angled them. And we had the LED light synced to the plate. So if you were going through a forest of trees, say, with verticals and with a sharp light, then that additional light was synced to the lighting effect you were getting from the plate. So you get that sort of jagged wow. light coming through. And then within the world of the carriage, I just tried to use as many reflective surfaces as possible, so as much metal. Even with the extras, gave lots of them glasses, gave people glasses of water to drink because the value of the plate, the real plate out the window, is that you can get it reflected everywhere and you can really, you know, immerse people in that environment. Yeah, yeah wow. With that interactive light. Yeah. Wow. So for, for those listening that aren't in the business, the plate is a shot which is shot at a different time which is then inserted into the window. So it's kind of the background that you would see as the train's passing through the countryside or through the city or whatever. So um, it's always a challenge because if you're shooting on a real train, it's a small space, it's really noisy you know, stops and starts, there's safety issues, all of that. So you tend to this have this concept of shooting the material that's outside, it's placed in in post-production, but there's lots of technical challenges. So that's kind of sounds pretty groundbreaking what you did there. Um, and it works. So well done. <laughs> oh, thanks. Very well explained, Lee. <laughs> I always forget when I'm talking about it that... Yeah. That's, a, that's okay. Hey, um, that had to be one of the most sort of sought after projects on the planet um, at that time. How did you manage to win that gig? Well, I mean, my agent, William Morris, sent me the script and said, do you want to pitch on it? And I did a, I think I did a 60-page lookbook for it. And they, they give you no time to do these things when you're pitching on pilots. So I, had, I think I had 48 hours. And so I pulled as many images as I could and and I guess I, under each image I wrote, you know, the tone of, that I was trying to achieve and um, what happened, I was just struck it lucky in that both Phoebe and Vicky absolutely loved that lookbook and so did the head of comedy at HBO. In fact, she printed it out and carried, around, and carried it around with her to every meeting, kept saying, just deliver me this. I'm like, okay, Amy, I'll do that. <laughs> 
So, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And with the um, the lead woman, were you, I mean, she's incredible. Were you worried that audiences wouldn't go with her because you had, a you know, a mum leaving her kids, you know, heading off to the other side of the world and following an old flame? Yes, yeah. And certainly that was HBO's concern that she has to be relatable. She has to be somebody that you will forgive, you know. But she also has to be somebody who, who really lets you in to her interior world and Merritt does that so brilliantly. She lets you write in. And your approach with those two actors, I mean, they're so good. Did you have to actually give them much direction or was it mostly just giving them this great fertile environment and letting them loose? Really, you can. I mean, they're so good, you can let them loose. But a lot of the direction was early on when we are just working through the piece because, you know, the scenes can go, there's so many different ways you can take them. So we all had to make sure we were absolutely on the same page in terms of the essence of the scene and how we wanted to push or pull it because it was a, such a seesaw. There were a lot of little decisions to make, obviously editorially, but also just tonally every step of the way. And once you made that tonal commitment, then, you know, those guys can do anything. Your sorts of actors, if they're in the right place and they know exactly where they're going, they'll find it and they'll find it in surprising ways too. That makes sense. As it turns out, the way you got into the business turned out to be kind of probably the best way to learn about the business in that you got to, you know, you got to work in the camera department, you were a focus puller, you did continuity, you were ADing, you did a whole bunch, you learned lots of different departments and I guess you got to work with lots of great directors, producers, DPs, technicians and maybe some not so great ones. What are some of the things, what are some of the do's and don'ts that you kind of observed at that time and thought, you know, when I'm directing, I'm going to do blah and blah and I'm not going to do blah? (laughs) That's a really good question. I mean, gosh, there's so many different movies that I worked on in different capacities that, look, I think listening, you you have to be able to listen as a director and I would see directors go in and steamroll actors and I would see them kind of like, turn off, roll their eyes and sort of shut down, you know, just not hear, uh, not only the director but also stop listening to to their co-actors. So that's really a big thing for me. I think learning to have your crew on side, learning to communicate with your crew and honestly for me to give everybody involved a degree of ownership because once you let everybody on the crew just feel like they have some creative ownership, they're going to give so much more and you get two plus two equals ten, not just four. You know, you have to... um, you all have to be um, trying to drive the train to the same destination, but everybody has to feel that they're contributing. And I, I'd, I've worked with dictatorial directors who really cut people out of that equation and it just breeds resentment. What else? I've also worked with amazing directors and learnt that, oh, so, so much, you know, like working with John Seal as a, as a cinematographer, even though I mainly work with him on commercials, but then he directed a film that I worked on in Vanuatu and you had Jeff Simpson shooting it. It was fascinating to watch that dynamic because John Seal, normally DP working with Jeff, watching that delicate communication where you've got one director working with another DP trying to, you know, nuance what they want without getting in the way of that person. No, I get the picture. Yeah, it's a delicate dance particularly, isn't it, the line between director and DP. What's your approach, say, on, well, on Run or any of the shows as far as preparing shot lists and things and then turning up there on the day? If you've got something really specific in mind, are you like, okay, I want you standing here, I want you standing there and the camera's over here and blah, blah, blah? Or I guess it depends how much time you've got. Let them have a crack and see what they do and then go from there. 
What, it, what honestly, you- it also depends on the actors. Some actors love to be blocked. They don't want to think about it. And some actors really love to find their place in the scene. And I don't always notate. I used to be very, like, notate it all out. And then almost I think the more you do it, the more you want to find the magic, you want to find the surprises. And even though you'll have your rough plan, you're kind of hoping that it all goes up, up in smoke and you can find something that's very immediate and energetic on the day. Obviously, that doesn't come into play on VFX-heavy shows or period shows where you've got to have everything laid out much more thoroughly. I think for me these days working with the actors and working out how to communicate with each of them and what they need from me and where I'm useful and where I get in the way. And sometimes that is to do with the spatial stuff as well. So there's other shows where we're trying to light in such a naturalistic way that I know that I need them near the window for that or I know that there's some sort of theme that I'm playing to where I know I need them you know, near that corner, near that portrait or whatever. There's just so many forces at play. But for me, I'm always so fascinated by the actor's instincts and I love it when, you know, when I've done my shot list and then I say, well, let's just play with it and they play with it and they land. It's just a big tick. <laughs> <laughs> it totally depends on on so many different um, factors. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell me, as you've sort of jumped onto a big show and you're working with a high-profile star and the show's been running for a season or two, what happens when you're in there and they know the character inside out and they know the backstory, you know, last season and the season before, but you can see they're doing something that could be better or is wrong or whatever. How do you handle those sort of delicate moments and what might you say to one of those people to steer them on to perhaps a, a better way of, of um, handling something? Again, the actual words I use depend on the actor I'm dealing with, but it could be something like, well, you know, should we, like, have we got that one in the can? Should we, should we just play with it? Should we just try this and see where this takes us? But it's a million different ways I can talk to actors. Um, <laughs> it really, really depends on the situation. You know, some of them on Offspring, Ash, you know, when you get to know an actor so well, she'll, she can tell if I'm sugarcoating anything. And in the end, she just preferred me to <laughs> be absolutely blunt, you know, it really, in fact, Asha got to the point where she would see me at the monitor out of the corner of her eye and go, I can tell you didn't like that one. And she she said, you've got the worst poker face. (laughs) Poker face has got better, I think. Anyway, yeah. Offspring was a phenomenon and I loved it. It was, you know, that great comedy drama or dramedy, serious comedy or whatever, what would you call it? Oh, well, I guess in those days we called it dramedy, although that word doesn't doesn't have, yeah, comedy drama, doesn't matter, dramedy, <laughs> yeah. So, look, for me the main thing with that when I read it was if I can take an audience from laughing to crying within, you know, five seconds, it's fantastic. To get on that roller coaster where you really, really soften someone up, make them feel incredibly teary and emotional and then make them laugh or vice versa or have them in fits of laughter and then flip it and all of a sudden they're gut-punched. That's really satisfying. So it was the tonal shifts in that that were so enticing and always so challenging but so rewarding when we when we were able to nail them. Yeah, great cast, great production design, great writing, like everything came together. And even the, yeah, the art department in the hospital, what you did, what you didn't do, all of that, you seemed to sort of be able to get away with anything on that show <laughs> and, and it worked. Yeah, we did. Look, there was a lot of, I was in the story room for the first two seasons and there was a lot of, everyone throwing in their experiences. There's even a bit in there where I think Grace, our firstborn, um, turned blue on day two after I birthed her and I was running down the corridor in my undies like, oh, my God, 
that's I want to help my baby. And Deb does that in the pilot. You know, she's running down the court with that baby. So there's so much of, you know, life experience, of everybody's life experience in there, not just Deb Oswald's, but, you know, Michael Lucas's, Jonathan Gavin's. It, it, it had a lot of truth in it, even though a lot of it was heightened. There's a lot of people who were willing to just open themselves up and go, I remember when this happened. And and the writing was just, they're, they're just really good writers, those guys, you know. Absolutely. Another great Aussie show you did was Secrets and Lies, and that was the one that got picked up in the US and you, you know, got invited to go and direct some eps over there and that got you rolling there with Tracy Robertson and Hoodlums. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the Hoodlums. <laughs> I mean, great show. How was that working with Juliet Lewis and Ryan, Ryan Philippe. Philippe? Yeah. Um, I mean, Juliet's mad in the best possible way and Ryan is um, – Ryan had not done TV before, so uh, it was interesting to watch him work with with the system in a way in that he's used to receiving notes from the director only, but in television you can get notes from the writer as well. And so that was a bit weird for him. Um, you know, obviously they have a lot of status that you work with, but it was it was very enjoyable. It was it was weird for me because I'd set up the whole show you know, conceived with Bob Humphreys conceived of all the visuals for the original. And this one was tonally, they'd spun it out into a lot more episodes. There was a lot more sort of domesticity in it and it visually wasn't sort of as European in flavour, I suppose, as what we were trying to do with with the first one. But it was a shock for me to transition from having the machinery that you have on an Australian show to the, the behemoth of machinery that you have on an American one. Yeah. Really. And also I had not been fully trained in terms of how to work with the writer on set. And so I made some errors that I would call cut and then go, right, and moving on a couple of times without checking with the writer, which is a no-no. Now on pilots and stuff, there's an understanding it's different. But back then I really had to turn and say, were you happy with that? And in Australia, you use the momentum, you go, cut, okay, now we're on to the whatever shot. And, you know, you keep the crew moving because you have to, you've got less time, you've got less money, you just have to keep moving and you don't have the writer on set. And so now I've learnt, I learnt so much on that show. I learnt that I really need to establish that relationship early on, establish trust, et cetera, et cetera, and loop them into what I'm doing. Makes yeah. sense, yeah. And like how long were the average shoot days on that and how many days did you get for an app? Oh, my God. See, these are the questions that always, uh, the answers to which always elude me. Well, the longest day you can do these days is 14. We didn't go past 14 hours. And I'm trying to remember what we got. Look, the standard you know, days per episode would be eight, but usually there was, may have been nine on that show. Okay. I don't know. Can't remember. Yeah. Okay. No, I got the picture. Um, and how has it been? Like you've got these, you know, great Aussie producers that help get your career going here. Tracy Imogen, uh, John, John Edwards, Edwards etc. Yeah. Now you're kind of top of the mountain after the Handmaid's Tale, Emmy nomination, all of that. I'm sure you're getting offered, you know, hundreds of things across the planet how are those phone calls with your your old mates of them going hey can you can you come back we've got this show and you're like oh, oh look i, I don't do have time Tracy. And- i was on jessica jones and i pulled out to do to do harrow for her oh, right, so that wow. was like a blew my marvel relationship for that one because she's having a really bad time oh you're a legend uh, so and look she's she's a re- she became a really good friend we hung out a lot in la so when you see a friend who's you know whatever needed help so that was that was all fine so yeah it i guess well with tracy i feel like we've been a lot of that journey together because we've both been in the u.s you know and you become really close friends with everybody else who's over there doing their thing 
John has been an amazing. I mean, honestly, I would credit John Edwards with really instigating my career and he's been an incredible supporter all along. So, and he has, he's had a few projects he's come to recently with, but I actually can't attach to anything here at the moment because I'm on a deal with HBO. So I am forbidden while I'm under this overall deal. That's a, that's that, a, that's a good that's answer. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, forbidden, it made me think of forbidden fruit. So let's talk about The Handmaiden's Tale. I watched that again last week. What a masterpiece, really, of TV drama. Absolutely blew my mind the second time. Tell us how that came about. Obviously, the colour palette, the design, the look, the tone, the music, everything is amazing. But I guess most of that was in place. You directed, I think, episode nine out of ten. Is that right? Eight, eight and nine. Eight, yeah. eight and nine. Okay. I did two of them. Yeah. So, Reed Morano set up that look brilliantly. Yeah. In the way that I pitched for Run, she did a pitch for The Handmaid's Tale and... I mean, the colours are a combination of her working with the brilliant costume designer and really, really going deep into not just the sort of superficial visuals of it all, but really the thematics of it so that when you see a lot of handmaids together, it's like sort of menstrual blood running through the show. There was all this stuff with the... um, so they, so they can't self-harm, they can't be shoelaces, they can't be... There's, oh, they can't have pockets so they can't hide anything... It's a whole lot of layering in those costumes that uh, is really fat. And obviously the blinkering, so they can only see in front of them with the bonnets. They just did a really deep dive on costumes and it really paid off. Yeah, it was incredible, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, with the lockdowns, the social distancing, the masks, the censorship, a lot of the stuff that's happening across the planet of late, having watched that episode, like I watched it first when it came out, uh, Ep 9, and then I watched it again last week, kind of spooky how much of those things have come to fruition and yeah it's a little uh well more than a little concerning um were you aware as you were making it how significant it was going to be there was a feeling that we were absolutely on the cusp of actually speaking a truth that was becoming increasingly um self-evident and i think I think that is what allowed everybody to give so much to that show. That was a really tough show to make. The the weather the in particular made it, I mean, I remember coming back with it. My toe, my big toe tingled for a month after I finished shooting. I thought, I'd, I don't know, I didn't know what was going to happen. So the damn thing going to fall off. But it was just very, very tough conditions to shoot in and everybody gave like 7,000%. It was the commitment to that story was extraordinary. I've never quite felt that before, the unity in, in a crew and cast, yeah. And honestly, Elizabeth Moss was a lot of that. She was so committed to that. Like I had a break in between my prep and my shoot and we were I was in New York for Christmas and she and I were texting just the whole time about the thing and it was like, you know, it was like it was like it reminded me a bit actually of Asher on Offspring. That level of commitment where you just you just want to get this thing right, and um, it was too important to to not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's astonishing, isn't she? Just like wow, she's astonishing, and she's fearless around the camera. Like she just you can have the lens on a wide angle, sort of inches from her face, and it's like she won't feel it. It won't change anything. She's just right. She's so present. You know. Yeah, I, I actually met her when she was about 12 in L.A. We were in L.A. And, yeah, I just remember meeting this girl. She was on, like, doing some um, teen sort of 
Disney kind of show or something like that. But I just remember these big blue, you know, eyes just looking straight through you and you're like, wow, that's, yeah. that's a, you know, an old soul kind of vibe. And, um, yeah. wow, she just brings so much to everything she does, doesn't she? Yeah. yeah. So that must have been pretty thrilling when it was rolling out. Give us an insight into the action from agents and managers and the number of, you know, scripts and offers coming in. And it must have kind of been pretty hectic there for a while. Exciting, obviously, but hectic and like, okay, you know, need to make the right moves and take the right opportunities and all of that. Like, how was that moment in time? Well, it was wonderful. I mean, I, I wasn't, you know, obviously not expecting an, the Emmy nomination and I just woke up to like all these texts and what the hell is going on? And I nearly fell off a perch. And I'd only submitted it at the last minute thinking, oh, well, I'll shove that in and see what happens. I actually said the same thing to Dana. I said, you know, you can just self-submit the episode that you think you were. Oh, she's like, oh, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And then Dana got a norm as well. <laughs> yeah, so it shows, shows you. You've got to be in it to win it. And the whole US experience was a, a thing for me because I'd spent so long in Australia working up to directing. And look, in the UK, I'd set up a BBC show as well. So I'd been a pilot, I guess not a setup director, as you call it in Australia for, for some time. And I knew when I moved to the US, I couldn't just be setting up shows because I had to start again. I had to prove myself. Nothing I'd done in Australia really counted in, in, in their eyes. So I kind of started again. I thought, oh my God. And then after The Handmaid's Tale, bang, I was back to being offered pilots. So for me, it changed everything. And I got to get back to doing that initial setup you know, finding the cast, the locations, working with the writer from the outset, all that stuff that I had missed that I had been doing in Australia for quite some time. So it was very much life-changing. All of a sudden I was being sent pilot after pilot and, yeah. Okay. No? <laughs> okay. I'm not going to ask you about red carpet or any of that sort of <laughs> Well, you've been on enough uh, red carpets. <laughs> not, not interested. No, so I'll tell you, yeah. the best thing about the red carpet was watching how much my husband loved it <laughs> and the fact that he got free outfits, you know. Actually, it was hilarious. I don't think I did. Actually, I did get some free outfits. Yes, I did. <laughs> Lee Matthews very kindly made me something too. And I loved, though, watching his thrill with it all. And he's got an endless capacity for partying. And in that week in the lead up to the Emmys, there's an event every night. And I was shooting, I was shooting Heather, so I couldn't go to her. I couldn't go to the DGA party. I couldn't go. There's a bunch of them I couldn't go to. And uh, But he was always chomping at the bit, and, you know, and a lot of their parties they send cars. So, you know, and I remember one night I got back from shooting Heather's and he's like, right, let's go, I'm dressed. And the, the, the car was waiting and uh, and he was like, you know, chuff, chuff me out the door and they had to get up at 4 a.m. the next morning. So he pushed me to party harder <laughs> than I might have. The grand US adventure. So tell me about, because there's probably people out there wondering, you know, wow, I'd like to be a director. Oh, but what do directors do? And, you know, how do you get into the business? Obviously, there's a million and one ways and the, the, the way in is completely, you know, different in many respects now as it was to when you and I got into the business. Just give us an insight into you at school and was there an epiphany of like, yeah, I want to do that, I want to be a storyteller or write or make films or was it something that just happened while you were at um, uni doing your communications degree? Oh, you have done your research. Um, <sighs> I, you know, what? I think I was aware of the film industry very early on from the weirdest thing that happened when we, I lived in Manila as a child for two years and then we, we lived in Pennsylvania the two years. But in those two years living in the Philippines, we did this trip upriver uh, to Paxahan Falls. And I remember we were rafting on the falls and all of a sudden 12 uh, Huey helicopters 
came across super, super low, incredibly loud. And the guide, you know, with the raft just screamed at our family, said, get down, get down. It's the rebels. And so at that time, there was a lot of unrest in Mindanao. And we were like, oh my God, oh my God, we're going to be shot at out of the Huey. So we're all flattened to the bottom of the raft. And then all of a sudden, he just starts guffawing with laughter and pointing at our family, <laughs> thinking it's the funniest thing ever. And he says, ah, no. You silly people. They are shooting um, Apocalypse Now just up the road and uh, and those are their helicopters. And I just remember the adrenaline rush of that, thinking, wow, that's amazing. They're shooting this movie and obviously Apocalypse Now was a huge thing in one's consciousness that period, you know, when it came out. And I... So I was aware of the of the adrenaline rush of the of the epic scale of of movie making and the thrill that could be had in it. And then I didn't. I made Super Eight films, but I always thought that was just a hobby. And then it was when I was doing fine arts at Sydney University, and we had to do the, all these sort of music video exercises. And I did something to the art of noise and, and a few things. And I really enjoyed. I had a lot of friends who were musicians, and I used to make their music videos for nothing. And I started just to really enjoy the process and. So somewhere when I was at Sydney Uni in first year, I realised, oh, no, this is this is what I want to do. And that's when I moved to communications at, at UTS. Okay, gotcha. But I guess one thing I would say about that is that, you know, I did my UTS degree and I came out going, woohoo, I'm a filmmaker. Yay, I'm going to make movies. And then I thought, oh, maybe I should just work on one film just to check that I know what I'm doing. And um, And that was it. I worked on one film and I went, I know nothing. <laughs> I need to do more crewing. And then I crewed on films, you know, as a clap of focus puller and then script supervisor for, for 10 years. So, and meanwhile, a lot of my friends came out of, you know, UTS and film school going, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. And they actually did, they just did it, you know, whereas I think I made the, I don't know if it's a mistake, but I made the choice to check that I knew what I was doing. And in doing so, I discovered that actually I didn't know that much. And <laughs> A lot more to learn. <laughs> oh, I think you made the right call because you went and learnt so much in the different departments. So when you did get those opportunities, you've certainly made the most of them and haven't dropped the ball. So good good job, Kate. Yeah. Well, there was a point where, you know, clapper loading, basically banging two bits of wood together where I thought, oh, my God, I've been doing this for five years. How long am I going to be slapping two black and white bits of wood together? But, uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. How was the transition? Because obviously you're working with film in the beginning and loading, you know, film uh, as well as slapping two bits of wood together. <laughs> How has the transition from film, were you directing in the film days or mostly crew in the film days? Uh, well, directing, but only directing short films and music videos. So I didn't get paid. Oh, actually, no, I was. What am I talking about? I've been directing... All my all my television work in Australia was shot on sixteen mil, okay. and that was the thing. That was a bit of a demarcation back in the day that you you wanted to work on the shows that were sixteen mil, which were supposedly the quality shows, and that the shows that were shot on tape were were less so. So that was yeah, it was always a thing. I remember yeah. with my agent yeah. go for those shows, um, and in London that was on sixteen mil. Yeah, gotcha. Tell me about kind of coverage and like there's so many different ways of shooting a scene um, for people not in the business. There's, you know, a traditional way of like a, a wide shot, an establishing shot, and you shoot a medium shot and you shoot close-up singles and it's all cut together in post. Obviously, there's many other potentially more interesting ways of doing it. A steady cam shot that's tricky and lasts for a long time and it takes quite a while to get it right, but it gives you less options to edit later on. 
and condense the duration of the scene and pick out the best parts well, of it and all of that. And that was a lesson you talk about lessons learned. That was a lesson I learned on a film called That Play in the Fields of the Lord in Brazil, which was directed by Hector Babanco, who'd done Kiss of the Spider Woman. He had Larry McConkie, who'd invented the steady cam or was with Gat Brown doing Steadicam and he fell in love with that uh, that tool and he shot, I don't know, how, what percent, a huge percentage of the scenes in one shot on the Steadicam. And this is a film that we were down in uh, Belang at the mouth of the Amazon shooting for seven months in stinking equatorial heat. Anyway, he got back to LA uh, with all the footage and he had a five-and-a-half-hour film that he just couldn't <laughs> cut down. And, uh, and the film paid for it. it. It was just, and I always remember thinking, you know, John Edwards used, used to say, well, we're never short of coverage with you, <laughs> you know, but that was that. That was a painful lesson when you're stuck somewhere and I was the clapper loader lugging, you know, big Panavision cases um, for seven months, working my butt off. We all worked so hard on that film and then he couldn't cut. You just think, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, 300 of us working so hard. And, and, and the coverage wasn't there to, to, to really make the creative choices that needed to be made. Um, so, sorry, back to your question. You know, it just depends on the tonality of the project. If you're doing a, a show which is more aware of its framing, more, more aware of the formality of the camera, then, you know, you're going to cover it in one way. If you're doing a show like Run where you're reactive, where you're just trying to catch those moments and, and you actually actively, and same with Handmaid's Tale, where you work so closely with your operator that, you tell them, and if that person looks over there or blinks, can you kind of rotate the camera? You know, can you react? Like it's like a ballet between the operator and the performer. And so the, the operator needs to be really in tune with the emotions of the scene. There's so many times where I wished I was able, like my dream originally had been to go from focus pulling to camera operator so that I could work that closely with the actors and, and the lens. So there's no one way to do it. I'm not even necessarily going to shoot the wide shot first. If I need to warm the actors up, then I'll do the wide shot first. Or if the blocking is still falling into place, then you can kind of get that happening quickly by getting into your wides. But you may want to capture that emotion. It might be something, depending on your actor, that you know they might only have in them for three or four takes. So therefore you start with your close and then you move out to your wide. And you were asking about early shows. You know, the biggest show for me, I just remember, was Secret Life of Us. That was that was the defining well, I was living in London at the time and coming back at Christmas and I remember Amanda Higgs and John Edwards would always kindly give me those December, January episodes so that I could uh, work in Australia and then go back go back to London. But that was, you know, that was very felt very zeitgeisty at the time. Yeah, another great show. Hey, a um, couple of questions about a few of the other recent US shows. <laughs> I watched Tick. I'd never seen that. What a trip! Oh yeah, isn't that? It's it's a it's a fantastic show. Yeah, um, it's I it was not something I thought I had ever wanted to do, and but it was such sort of off piste humour. And um, Peter Serafinovitz is such a talent that although he hated being in that suit, I have to say, like. <laughs> he's claustrophobic. So every time we zipped him into it, and all the mechanics for his little antennae lived in the in the helmet piece so it would get incredibly hot and he's a smoker so he's always wanting to go outside for a cigarette it was it was a pretty tough gig for him but the the humor in that was just uh, bonkers ben edland has a very uh, interesting brain the creator it was it was really clever was there much stuff storyboarded and all the rest of it for some of those action scenes or did you have your same approach as usual? Uh, I did. I did. I actually bought this. I think the prep for that was pretty tight. So often with storyboards, you'll find that unless you've got enough prep, you, it's very hard to get them right. So Handmaid's Tale, yes, that bridge sequence, I completely storyboarded because I had very limited light to get to achieve that in. I had three cameras. I had to know when I was moving the crane base and all and all that. And 
just really basically about getting the cameras into the right position in in time to to achieve it, knowing when to take them off, which rigs, etc. Something like the tick we were shooting in the streets of New York, which are actually fantastic. The way they they turn around uh, a shoot day is incredible. Like you, you'll lose if you lose a location, the locations team because a lot of them are ex cops, and a lot of the um, the drivers are also ex cops in in the city of New York, they can swing you into a new location and get the clearances and permits to shoot within 24 hours. It's just just amazing what, what they can do there. So I love shooting in New York. But did I do storyboards? I don't think I did. I think I mainly did shot lists, but also I would do aerial maps. And I use scriptation now, my, so it's all on my iPad now, so everything's digital. And, you know, you just get a layout of the street and mark up where the, where the camera angles are and and sometimes little reference frames. But if it was a DP I'd worked with, you know, after the first episode I felt like I knew his how to communicate with him and we would just, yeah, we would do it in a more sort of off-the-hip sort of manner. But, yeah, the scriptation has been brilliant, though, I will say, in terms of being able to distribute information and draw up maps and little frames and just email them off to people the night before so they can get their head around it. Um, gotcha. So you do little mud yeah. mud maps of, say, yeah. the next day's stuff, yeah. camera here, Especially camera with there. Because Tick is obviously incredibly VFX heavy yeah. and you needed, you know, there's a lot of stuff to move around. Where's that green screen going to go? Are we going to include that? You know, yeah, lots of lots of consideration about where to hide, usually where to hide the uh, catering uh, vehicles. No, <laughs> no the grip trucks. <laughs> Can we park there? Are you going to see in that direction? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. And so what would a day look like on one of those shows? Would you, you do your 10, 12, 14-hour day and then would you get back to your room and you'd do some prep for the next day's scenes or have you been able to do most of that prior to the shooting day starting? Uh, it depends again, but I would, I usually get there an hour before and just walk through everything I want to do, um, with just with myself to check that it's all as I saw it in my head. Uh, and then the cast are brought on. Yes. You do shoot day. And at the end of that shoot day, you know, I'll call my editor if there's anything I was worried about, about the day that I just shot, but otherwise I would drop myself into prep for the next day. And it's pretty well, you're working on six hours, you know, call my kids. I mean, you know, they're in LA, so there's a time difference. I'm helping there with their projects, blah, 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 to try to get them off the phone so I could get back to prepping, finally get to sleep at midnight and get up at five or whatever. It's pretty gruelling. <laughs> it is gruelling. No other word for it. Exhilarating but gruelling. Hey, yeah. um, another show I hadn't seen that I watched was Turn, Washington Spies, period piece. I really enjoyed it because I, I don't know a whole lot about that period of American history, having, you know, grown up in Australia. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a really fascinating world. How was that show to work on? That I loved working. That, that was the show that made me decide to stay in America. The people involved were so committed to veracity in terms of, again, the, the, the costume designer and the uh, production designer were so committed to the texture of the era and and the lengths they went to to get that right were extraordinary. Uh, and the actors, a lot of British actors on that show who I loved. I mean, Jamie Bell, all of them, fantastic. And the showrunner, Craig, is such a good communicator of this vision. So we do all our meetings and, you know, showrunners usually sit in on the big meetings and he had such a clear vision that it was it was a joy to sort of bring that to the screen. We shot it in Richmond, Virginia, which is so full of history anyway, and we tried to light it in the manner in which it would have been lit back then. So a lot of it was just lit with candles, so it has a really beautiful uh, texture about it. 
Yeah, very cool. Worth checking out, anyone who hasn't seen it. Was that AMC or HBO? AMC. AMC. Yeah, AMC. Yeah, right. yeah. Very cool. Hey, um, I know you've, you've written a few features, I believe. You, you wrote one that Charlotte Rampling ended up starring in. Is that right? I, I rewrote that. Okay. I, yeah. Uh, superstition, yeah. So when I moved first moved to the UK from Australia, so I was attached to a film that Stephen Elliott had fallen out of called Glorious Monday, which actually eventually got made as The Tree with Charlotte Gainsbourg. It was a comedy about grief. It was incredibly hard to get it up. Steph had to go on and do something else and they hired me. And we couldn't get it up at the time, but it resulted in me moving to the UK. And it took a long time to get my directing visa, even though I'd been doing a bunch of directing already in Australia. But weirdly, I could get a writing visa much more quickly. And I had been writing over the years. I didn't really call myself a writer, but my agent at Peters Fraser and Dunlop, and they repped, you know, Tom Stoppard and all these amazing writers. So they're like, we can get you work as a writer. <laughs> I was, okay. And there's a lot of great rewriting work in the UK. And so Superstition was one of those jobs. It was Peter Greenaway's producers. Uh, it was a Dutch film and they needed a English-speaking woman to to do the rewrites and and so I was I was hired and what was great about it was they wanted me also on set basically had a hotel room on Lake Como the doors would open onto the lake and then we're yeah it was it was wonderful shooting initially and then back in um, Holland with Charlotte Rampling and I remember the producer remember the producer I had to go in and do meetings with Charlotte in her trailer about some of her scenes and lines and stuff and 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 he had such a crush on her but there was one time when I went in and she was just in her undergarments or whatever and, and I came out and I went well you missed out that meeting was <laughs> it was like oh god she's such an elegant elegant woman yeah she's you know. amazing so you've covered so many miles the the juggle with kids how old are your kids now 13 and 15 13 and 15 yeah so David's uh, heroic hands-on uh, super dad Yes, he got dragged. Well, he was, yes, he got dragged to LA where he couldn't work. And, but honestly, he wanted to give up what he was doing. He was a lawyer. He wanted to give it up anyway. So that sort of worked out. But then we both underestimated how much time I would spend out of Los Angeles. You know, we, we rented this fantastic mid century house with a pool. I promised the kids a pool. So I had, that, I had to deliver a pool. Otherwise, they didn't want to go. And, uh, you know, it was the perfect sort of cocktail party house. So we did a lot of entertaining, but when I wasn't there, you know, you can go to Costco and buy like a thing of gin for about, you know, 10 bucks. And he was just whipping up cocktails and, you know, basically, you know, <laughs> drinking by the pool with friends. And I think by the end of it, he's like, okay, I need some purpose. This is all too much. Making coffee and cocktails is basically, and driving the kids to school and back. Yeah. So talking about the number of genres, we're pretty close to wrapping up here. Do you have a favourite genre? I love to write that comedy drama, Knife Edge. For me, that is the, the greatest challenge. To do straight genre pieces is just, it's more obvious and more straightforward. And although it often affords me a lot of cinematic scope, I, I miss those intricate tonal shifts. And I think it's the most interesting material to work on with actors too, a lot of the time. Totally agree. And it's, it's a good thing because there's some really interesting combinations. It's no longer, here's comedy over here and here's drama and it's sketch comedy and it, like the lines have been blurred so much. It seems like the most interesting stuff is the shows that blend those in, you know, new and surprising ways, isn't it? Yeah. You know, your flea bags, your Killing Eve, all those shows are doing it so well. Yeah. Yeah, true. You seem to be just like very level-headed and sensible. I mean, obviously with, you know, TV drama and things, you're trying to bring all these elements together and have them, you know, blow up on the screen. Do they ever, you know, blow up at home or not on the screen? And uh, <laughs> <you> just, <yeah. laughs> 
quite, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a fiery personality and I think that's helped me. I mean, honestly, I tackle most things where I can with some degree of humour, but I, I try to, but um, yeah, the kids will sometimes drive me bananas. Yes, yes, one can always <laughs> occasionally lose it with the kids. But, you know, I always find if you're too antagonistic with people in any, in anywhere, on, at work, at home, then they, they'll try and match you and things just escalate and before you know it, there's a disaster. And honestly, I think... All that crewing taught me that you you just got to keep your head. You know, it's so easy for things to spiral out of control, and I think I'd seen it too many times on on set, and and it's impacted both my on set behaviour and my <laughs> my behaviour in life. But I'm you know far from perfect. I will say that. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> that's cool. Hey, um, nearly there. Rake another Aussie classic that I just remembered. Was that a treat to work on? Oh, God, yes. Rake was uh, so much fun. Richard is is an extraordinary human being in front of the camera and behind it, and he's it's just the whole package, you know. And, it, look, talk about comedy drama. The way he rode that character was just, I mean, there's been nothing quite like that in Australia, I think. And Peter Duncan was an old friend from Sydney Uni. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, no, he was running the law reviews, that's right, back then. And so Peter had known forever. So, you know, it's sort of like a coming home, working on that. And also the other cast that Richard could draw because he's such an extraordinary actor, which is such a high level of, of cast working on that show that it was performance-wise just, just a joy. And for me it was always it was great to be back in Sydney and, and all my own old haunts and things. Fantastic. Last question. I thought this season or this year I'm going to ask people if uh, they could recommend anyone else who I should have on the podcast, on the blank canvas. Oh, <laughs> what are the prerequisites, Lee? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Richard Roxburgh. Yeah, yeah. Peter, Peter Rox Duncan. Is, Rox is great, very eloquent. Yeah, he'd be, he'd be, he'd be a great contender. <laughs> Andrew Knight. You know, Essie Davis. Yeah. We finally saw Baby Teeth the other day, and Essie um, incredible. Just blew my mind in that role. I yeah. mean, she's always blown my mind. She's just insanely um, talented. Peter Duncan is always fun to interview. There's, I mean, there's millions of people. Uh, okay, good. Imogen Banks, you know. Fantastic. Well, look, I'll let you get on with your day. Thanks so much for having a chat. That was enlightening. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. That's it for another week. I loved hearing Kate's insights into her process. She's down to earth and makes it sound simple, but it's taken decades of hard work in the high pressure hot seat of directing big budget series to earn her place at the top. Look up Kate Dennis on imdb.com, that's the internet movie database, and you'll find her credits and your future viewing list will be sorted. Or you can find the link in the show notes. Next week is one of Australia's most legendary photographers, Graham Shearer. He's shot supermodels like Elle McPherson, Naomi Campbell, Linda Evangelista and actors such as Keanu Reeves, Kim Bassinger and Nicole Kidman. For magazines Vanity Fair, Tatler UK, US Vogue, US Interview and the list goes on. Until next week, live large. Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.